uh, let's pray together. Lord, we pray that this morning is an opportunity for us to hear from you. That uh, the words that come from my mouth aren't from me, but they're actually from you. That, that anything that, that might come from my mouth that, um, that isn't of your word would fall on deaf ears. Lord, would you open our hearts and ears and minds and hearts to, to hear and receive your truth today. Amen. Well, a businessman uh, decided it was time to shed some excess pounds, and, and so he, he decided he was going to go on a diet. And he figured, you know, I'm going to take this diet really seriously, and I'm even going to change my route to work just to stay clear of my favorite bakery. And so he took an alternate route, and every day, just to steer clear of the temptation that this ba- he knew this bakery would offer. This worked well for some time, until one day he showed up to work, fully carrying his favorite coffee cake in hand. And all of his co-workers were like, what happened? You're doing so well with your diet. And he said, you know, I was driving to work this morning, and I didn't get a good sleep, and I, so I kind of zoned out, and I just fell into old habits, and I t- ended up taking my old route to work. And when I realized what I was doing, I thought, you know, this must be some sort of sign from the Lord. And so, so I just kept driving. But just to make sure that I wasn't deceiving myself, I said, you know, I'm going to drive past the bakery. And if there's a parking spot available, then, then I'll stop in. The remarkable thing was, after the eighth time around the bakery, there it was. Well, that's, kind of the way, how, that's kind of the way sin works, isn't it? Sometimes it finds us, and other times we find it. This morning we are going to be uh, continuing our series on the armor of God and focusing on the next three weeks, the area of the helmet of salvation. As we do that, we are going to be walking through 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. Now, for those of you that may not be familiar with those two specific chapters, that's the story of King David, King David and Bathsheba. And I'm hoping that as we walk through this story, that we might be able to answer three critical questions that I think relate really well to the, this idea of the helmet of salvation. Who am I? Where am I? And what's next? Who am I? Where am I? And what's next? And I hope that what we might begin to see over the next three weeks is that in the midst of a series of really terrible decisions and some really awful consequences for these decisions, David is actually pretty relatable in many ways to you and I when it is some of the decisions that we make on a regular basis. And throughout this portion of Scripture, I hope that we might reflect on the question for ourselves, who am I? And then in the midst of, of our own poor choices, yet we, we discover that God still finds us in the midst of it and offers salvation from the consequences of our sin choices. Paul, though, in Ephesians 6, we have been, for those of you that may not know, we have been journeying through this selection of Scripture from Ephesians 6 since September. Paul tells us to put on the helmet of salvation. Now, just to be clear here, the helmet of salvation isn't just a reference to Christ's redemptive work on the cross and the hope that we have in eternal salvation. The helmet of salvation is actually something that that you and I can put on and know that it has implications for the ways that we live our lives right now, today. Now you may have noticed beside me is is a mirror. 
maybe this morning, as you got ready to come to church, or you just went up, as you got ready for your day, you walked into your bathroom and you saw a mirror. And maybe you were, initially you were frightened because of the night's work of sleep that had occurred within your hair and your, your appearance. Or maybe you were pleased and thought, you know, I'm looking pretty good. Or maybe you're just indifferent and you just carried on with your morning activities. Today, though, I want us to look into the mirror of our souls and ask this fundamental question. Who am I? Who am I? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, during the creation of mankind, we read that God created Adam and he says, it says that mankind was created in God's image. You may have heard the, the Latin phrase based on that particular scripture, imago Dei, which just simply means, again, made in the image of God. Now, just to be clear, this does not mean that we are all gods, but instead that there are significant similarities between us and God, characteristics of God that he has given to each of us, not his, not his divinity, just to be clear again, but aspects of himself that he has given to us, like our ability to rationalize, to make autonomous decisions, our ability to engage in complex interpersonal relationships, our ability to rule and govern and steward the God-given areas that he's placed in our lives. So again, to summarize, our ability to think, our ability to love, our ability to govern. Ultimately, you and I, we are created to be a reflection of the nature of God inside of us. And God concludes a little further on in Genesis chapter 1. That as he looks upon his six days of creation, he looks at, at mankind and he concludes, he looks at Adam and says, oh, that's really good. That's, that's very good. I like that. Takeaway for us today is that God looks at you and I, his creation. And he says, oh, you guys look good. That's really good. You guys, that looks, that is very good. But as we look in the mirror of our souls, what Genesis 1 tells us is that the image that we, that we are looking at isn't us, but it's actually the imago Dei, image of God, that he has created in us, created us to be. Where our attitudes and our actions might be, a, might be more of a reflection of the image of God than ourselves. So when we look in the mirror, we may not see ourselves, but instead we might actually see God in us. The problem, though, starts in the garden. When the image that we were created in is shattered because of sin. Again, in the garden, the image that we were created in is shattered. And there's, I mean, we can look in the, this image here and we can see fragments of the image that we were created and we can say, okay, there's a piece of that. I can see a little bit of God in there. But now it's a distortion from the way that it was intended to be. In the midst of Adam and Eve enjoying perfect creation, enjoying the fullness of being made in the image of God, there's this enemy that's looking for ways to destroy and disrupt and and distract us, to try and sabotage everything, that, the image that we were created in. 
And Satan is, is looking for that one moment where we just put our guards down just, just for a moment so that he can take us down a path that is rooted in temptation and ultimately in sin. Just like that businessman who was kind of daydreaming on the way to work and before he knew it, he was being tempted further and further and further. Now the Bible tells us that the consequence of sin, those sin choices, is punishable by death. That sin separates us relationally from God, and we are actually cursed to hell because of our sin choices. The reality is, though, is that sin has more consequences than just damning us to hell and separating us from God. Ultimately, our sin choices begin to disrupt the image that we were created in. And it distorts who God intended us to be and distracts how God invites us to live. It takes this this beautiful image that we were created in and sabotages the very good thing that God created when he created you and I. And this is where we enter the life of King David, who up until this point had lived this incredible, inspiring, God-fearing life. He had taken down Goliath at a young age. He had wrestled a lion. He faced off with the previous king, Saul, multiple times, and he did it with integrity. If we were looking at resumes of godly people, especially in the Old Testament, certainly David's name would have been near the top. King David was living his best life, and, and God had blessed him for it. Surely, if there was someone who had been living out the image of God the way it was intended to be, it, was definitely, it had to be David. Unfortunately for David... All it took was for one moment to lower his guard. And Satan was waiting for that right moment, the right opportunity where where David was most vulnerable. And as soon as David dropped his guard just for a moment, Satan was ruthless with his attack. Just like the businessman dropped his guard just for a moment and suddenly the temptation was now a reality. This is 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 4 says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, well, that's Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. And she came to him and he slept with her. David, alone in that night, waking up from his sleep, you just picture it staggering out onto his porch just to enjoy the warm Middle Eastern night wind. And he looks down over his kingdom. And he sees Bathsheba bathing. And it's in this moment that David is caught off guard and the temptation has now been presented. The trap has been set. And it's in this moment David's vulnerability is exposed and now he's faced with a decision. That he can now put on the helmet of salvation and protect himself from this trap, from this this temptation. Or he can walk down the path that Satan has now laid out for him. 
That's how temptation and sin works, isn't it? Not just sexual sin, by the way, but all sin. All sin takes us farther and farther from Jesus. For David, the appeal of this sexual temptation was just too much for him to walk away from. And he chooses sin instead of salvation. He embraces sin rather than be rescued from it. Admittedly, there is a sense of discomfort that I think that I think I feel. I don't know if you feel it as well with these two chapters where, where we read about this, this David who, in many accounts, as I've said, is, is done so well up to this point. And then, and then we have on record kind of the lowest point of David's decision-making as a man. And I don't know about you, but I certainly wouldn't want my worst choices in my life recorded. And I certainly wouldn't want them to be read by anyone if that was the case. I certainly wouldn't want them preached on hundreds of years later either. But that's what's happening here in chapter 11, where we begin to see David make one sin choice after another. Verse 2, David sees Bathsheba naked in the bathtub. Verse 3, finds out that she's married and yet still calls for her. Verse 4, has sex with her with a woman that's not his wife. And the reality is, though, is that whether it's sex with a woman who's not his wife or murder, which is actually where this path begins to lead for David, or eating an apple in the garden, we all carry the guilt of our own sin choices. That the image of God that we were designed to experience was distorted due to our sin choices. That the very good creation that defines who you and I are was twisted because of the very bad impact of the sin decisions that you and I make. Unfortunately, like Adam and Eve in the garden or David on the castle rooftop, Satan begins to say, well, you know what? You can fix this yourself. You don't need to worry about God. You can just fix it yourself. And so, you know what? Let's, you know, if we just, if we, maybe let's just justify or blame someone else and, you know, you know, you can just say, you know, Adam, you can just say, if, if the woman on the, in the garden wasn't there, she hadn't given you the apple, then, then that's just, that'll be enough to repair that broken image. Let's just blame someone else. Just justify our decisions. Can you just imagine, David? You know, I wouldn't have lusted after that woman if she wasn't taking a bath on her roof. Present day language that would be, I wouldn't have lusted after that person they didn't wear the clothing that they were wearing. Or we can hide it or avoid it, like Adam and Eve hiding their, their nakedness in the garden. And we're going to talk about that next week. Or that it was this momentary lapse in poor judgment. I was, I was groggy. I just, I'm just like the, the guy driving to the bakery. You know, I, I, just, I, just got, I just got so enraged with that driver on the road. I shouldn't have, but I just I got... I have poor moment of poor judgment. Or I shouldn't have gossiped about my boss or, or my neighbor because of a decision that they made that I, don't, that I don't agree with. Some of these sin choices seem so reasonable, don't they? Seem so easy to justify. And that's part of the deception that Satan uses. You see, he's far craftier and much more intelligent than you and I. And so he uses half-truths and clouded or muffled truths or avoidance to let us continue to live in the the broken image that our sin has created. If you just 
slap a couple pieces of tape on that broken image, that bad boy will be okay. And in the process of our sin choices, we just end up getting further and further down a path that leads us farther and farther from the image of God that God created us to be. And whether it's David or Adam and Eve or me or you, Satan begins to tell us that our sin choices won't disrupt the plan or purposes that God created us to have. That even if we do have sin, that the image won't be affected by our sin choices. That image will continue to be exactly the way that it was supposed to be. And I suspect that for most of us, our sin choices may not be as dramatic as David's or Adam and Eve's. But what if our sin choices were much more subtle things? Things like, Hoarding. I don't mean like the hoarding like in the TV show, but more like, you know, just maybe hoarding a little bit of our wealth. Not very generous. Maybe self-protectionism. What about judgmentalism? Or arrogance? Or self-righteousness? Or consumerism? Or stubbornness? Or selfishness? Or fear? Gossip? Or discord? Anger? Resentment? Unforgiveness? See, often sin isn't just a sudden exodus from God's plan where suddenly the whole image is just shattered. Suddenly God's plan, and it's not an exodus from God's plan or purpose in our lives, but it's often this, this slow descent away from Jesus. If you've ever had chip in your windshield, you know what I'm talking about, where, where you get a rock in the windshield and it's just a small little chip, and you're like, oh, that sucks. But over time, that chip begins to grow. And suddenly the cracks begin to get bigger and bigger. And now suddenly it's not just a small little chip the size of a penny, but now it's, now it's beginning to take over a third of your windshield. And then the image that we long to see in the mirror isn't Jesus at all, but instead it's just a shadow of who we were created to be. And then we're left asking this question, who am I? Who am I? What's the area in your life that has started to create a chip or a crack in the image you were created to bear. Look into that image and look into that soul mirror and see your soul and ask the question, who am I? See, the helmet of salvation that Paul calls you and I to put on isn't, isn't actually a departure from sin. Because you see, none of us are actually exempt from that. Instead, the helmet of salvation is an invitation into intimacy. Where even in the midst of our sin, Jesus calls us to a life rooted in Him. A life secured in Him. To choose a path that is paved with His purpose and plan for our lives. To choose a life that bears the image that God created you and I to live out. The Bible calls that process sanctification. Now, sanctification is just this Bible word that just means this ongoing process that, that all followers of Jesus experience. That we are shaped to be more like Jesus and to be the image bearers that we were designed to be. So that as we look into the mirror, as we look into the mirror, that we see less of ourselves and more of Jesus. The helmet of salvation is a recognition that every day we are called to live a rich, meaningful, purposeful life rooted in the presence of Jesus in our life. 
See, salvation is the, is the rescue from a place of danger and the restoration to wholeness. Let me say that again. That broken image that we had in the back here. Salvation is the rescue from a place of danger and the restoration towards wholeness. Now, as I mentioned, the, the goal of salvation and sanctification is to rescue us from our sin and help shape you and I to be more like Jesus. That's who we were designed to be. It's this constant forming and shaping and transformation that occurs in our lives on a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute basis that impacts how we think about ourselves. It begins to answer that question, who am I? It begins to shape how we perceive and understand who God is and about how we perceive and understand how others are and how we begin to interact with each of those things as well. It's this constant daily transformation that saves and rescues us and protects us from the different attacks that Satan uses to begin to distort the Imago day that we were all created in. Now, unfortunately, Satan isn't obvious in his attacks, is he? And so, normally I would give two or three suggestions on how, how to make sure foolproof ways to avoid temptation. How do we put on the helmet of salvation as we bear the image of God in our lives? where I talk about the importance of staying in community, perhaps. Surrounding ourselves with people who love God and love you and want to see you be more like Jesus. And absolutely, community is absolutely important. It's critical. But the reality is, is that it won't stop you from sinning. It'll help, but it's not foolproof. And next week, we're going to explore the question, where are you? And we're going to consider the importance of having people in our lives who are willing to speak into our lives and, and ask us the tough questions. Like, are you sure that's a good idea to eat the apple? Are you sure that's a good idea to invite a woman that's not your wife up to the room with you? Are you bearing the image of God with your life publicly and privately? See, I wonder often how these stories would have been different if the people they had in their lives spoke up for what was right and called their friend or their spouse or their leader into a life of holiness rather than just watch them jump into sin headfirst. Now, so I'd say community is, you know, a good thing to have. But I also might suggest that if you want to avoid sin, don't put yourself in a situation where you might be tempted. The New Testament talks a lot about self-control. And I think sometimes we think it's this concept similar to just willpower or just policing our behavior. Where we just convince ourselves that, that we shouldn't partake in that thing, whatever that thing is. So we might, if we're driving on the road, I'm, I'm just not going to get angry anymore. Self-control, though, isn't just this in-the-moment type response to temptation. Self-control is actually this predetermined decision to avoid a situation that might make that sin possibility and turn it into a reality. It also might require some reflection as to what's causing that type of sin response in us. I'm going to give a, a hypothetical scenario. Again, this is purely hypothetical. My wife and I, my wife will be able to confirm that it's not hypothetical at all. Most of you in my family knows this for sure, that my weakness of the flesh is ice cream. If there's one thing that challenges my willpower, it's ice cream. Whether it's 
chocolate moose tracks, mint chocolate chip, maple walnut. I have yet to meet an ice cream I don't like. But again, let's just play out this hypothetical scenario for the sake of higher learning and science and this illustration. If I know that when I have ice cream in my house, that I can crush a two-liter bucket within two or three days, that it's probably not a healthy idea for me to have it in my house. I know that I can probably will myself to not eat the ice cream for maybe a day or two. I can police my behavior and say, you know, I can restrain myself for a day or two. But I also know myself well enough that, that in that, that restraint, that there's actually in the back of my mind, there's this desire that's beginning to creep up, that's becoming stronger and stronger for the ice cream. And so instead of moderation, when the, finally, when the time finally comes, I'm not going to have moderation. I'm going to create a mountain of ice cream. Self-control, though, is most effective when we can identify in ourselves honestly and say, you know, this is an area that I struggle with. Whether it's pornography or drinking or gaming, ice cream, or eating apples in the garden. See, the issue of self-control is best addressed when we, when we don't even put ourselves in a scenario to even be tempted. If I know that ice cream is an issue for me, then I need to practice the self-control, not when I have the ice cream in my house, but when I'm actually in the grocery store preparing to even purchase it. I can't sit in the, in the freezer in the ice cream store and just pound back the ice cream right there. I need to make the decision in that moment going into the gro grocery store that I'm not going to make that decision to purchase it and bring that into my own house. David could have saved himself a world of problems. If he had seen Bathsheba bathing and said, I can't go there. Recognized the temptation and decided that he won't even bring that ice cream into his house. Because we know that it's a departure from the image we were called to be. See, we all know that when whatever our ice cream is, whatever that temptation is for us, that when we have that ice cream in our house, that at some point we're going to have to eat it. In the same way that David invited Bathsheba into his house, it wasn't just to get to know the local neighbors. He definitely had something else in mind in that moment. Self-control, though, says, I'm not even going to put myself in a situation that might force me to make that decision. Because in my humanity, in my weakness, I'm probably going to say yes more, than to, more to that temptation than I'm going to say no. So it might serve us well, then, to surround ourselves with people and community who love us and will point us towards Jesus. It might serve us well to practice self-control and, and avoid compromising situations. Unfortunately, the larger issue here is that there's a heart issue that needs to be addressed. That there's something deeper in our, in our lives that avoidance and community can't address. See, I can still covet what other people have, and it often happens actually, especially when I'm in community. I can't avoid driving, so getting impatient with bad drivers isn't something that will likely change. But I think Paul in Romans 7, verses 15 to 20, gives a little, helps us to get a picture of what's going on in terms of the heart challenge here. I'm going to read it from the message translation because I think that in some other translations it can get a little convoluted. This is Romans 7. 
I can anticipate the response that is coming. I know that all God's commands are spiritual, but I'm not. Isn't this also your experience? Yes, I'm full of myself. After all, I've spent a long time in sin's prison. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more. For if I know the law but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. See, the only guaranteed way to avoid sin, the only guaranteed way to stop sinning is death. The reality is, is that all of us, unfortunately, make decisions that distort, destroy, and disrupt the image of God that we were created in. The other reality, though, is that the only way for that image to be restored, transformed, and made new is through Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. The only way for that image to be restored the only way for that image to be transformed, the only way for that image to be made new, is through Jesus Christ. See, we all make choices that put cracks in that image that we were created to bear. None of us are perfect. From Adam and Eve, to David, to you and I, no one will get it. Yet God in His kindness, in His grace, and in His love, sought out you and I knowing that our lives were a distortion of what they were supposed to be, sent His Son, Jesus, not to condemn us and say, oh, you guys are really messed up, but to restore us. To take this broken image and make it brand new. The reality is, is that we can't make ourselves brand new by ourselves. We're helpless. We are slaves to our sin. Our sin has trapped us. Just like a, if you've ever seen a fly trapped in a spider web, the more it struggles, the more we just trap ourselves. As I said at the beginning of my message, the Bible tells us that because of our sin choices, we separate ourselves from God, and that the punishment for our sin is death. The Bible also says there's hope. That through Jesus, that He lived and died so that separation would no longer exist. And that the broken image we were created in would be restored. I invite the worship team to come on up. We see that where Jesus would take away the, the old way of life. And he would actually take that old way of life and throw it away. And restore it so that we would know what it means to be a life rooted in the nature of God. And a life that actually reflects God rather than rejects God. Let me repeat that. God sent His Son, not to condemn us, but to restore us. To restore that image, so that our lives would reflect God rather than reject God. 
And out of that reflection, our lives would be rooted in the salvation of Jesus rather than rooted in sin. That we would pursue Jesus in the image that we were created to bear. Paul writes a little bit later to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. If anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. Let's get that out of here. The new is here. That broken image, that old lie, that, that shame, that condemnation, that sin, that our sin brought on, us, brought on us all, is gone. We throw that old way of life in the garbage. We die to that way of life. And instead, we choose Jesus. We choose to receive His love for us. We choose to receive His forgiveness. We choose His salvation instead. So this morning, that question, who am I? I'm God's creation. Saved by Jesus. And he says, I am very good. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to be able to worship you. We thank you that you have come to restore the brokenness that is in each of us. That you have reconciled us to you, Jesus. So, Lord, as we go this morning, that we pray that we would be able to walk in your salvation, that you have rescued us from this, this old way of life, this patterns of sin, that we are no longer enslaved by it, but instead we are, we are freed because of you, Jesus. We thank you for your love for us today.